is Jordan. I am the staff elder to students, and I am very glad to be bringing you the word of God today. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it seems like more and more people in our culture compare Jesus to other religious figures. That somehow Jesus is just one amongst many of equal worthiness in history. And the logic goes, what makes Jesus greater than the rest of them? What makes Jesus any different? What distinguishes him from any other major religious figure? Why Jesus and not Muhammad? Why Jesus and not Buddha? Why Jesus and not Joseph Smith? Why Jesus and not Confucius? Why Jesus and not Krishna? Now, if you're a Christian, or if you've just been around church long enough, you might have some ideas or thoughts how you would answer that question or answer an objection like that. You might say something about Jesus' power, his deity, his prophecy, his impact, his charisma, his teaching, his compassion, or maybe his resurrection. Um, While all of those things are certainly true, I think if there was one word I could use to summarize, and really what the scripture used to summarize Jesus and what makes him different is authority. Authority is what makes Jesus different. Jesus had and continues to have authority. And not much unlike today, Jesus' authority was challenged even while he walked the earth during his ministry. People were asking, who is this Jesus? Why should I listen to him? Why does he have the right to tell me what to do with my life? Why should I listen to him? Where does he even come from? And those And so those types of questions were not just being hurled at Jesus today, but like I said, even during his ministry. And predominantly, these questions were raised by the religious leaders of Jesus' time. They were the predominant opposition to Jesus' ministry. And perhaps one of the most famous questions found actually in the Gospel of Mark that sums up really the religious leader's entire conundrum, their entire problem with Jesus was this question. In Mark eleven twenty eight, we see them ask this of Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? They wanted to know what authority Jesus spoke with and performed the miracles that he did. Where did it come from? And so for us today, we're going to seek to answer that question for ourselves and conclude for ourselves, how should we respond to Jesus' authority? On what authority did Jesus act and where did his authority come from? So if you have your Bibles and you haven't already, just go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 2. That's where we'll we'll be today. And I just want to catch you up from where we are from Mark chapter 1 so far. But Mark chapter 2 begins with Jesus coming back home, it says. Returning to the city of Capernaum. 
Now, if you know Jesus, you know he was born in Bethlehem and he grew up in Nazareth. That was not his native home. But it becomes apparent in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus had relocated during the time of his year, first year and a half of his ministry and made Capernaum sort of his home base. That's where he would go out to and from, from different cities and, and preach to them. And it's likely that Jesus lived with two of his disciples, Andrew and Simon, the first disciples that get called in Mark, and it's likely that he lived with him. It was that home initially in Mark 1 where Jesus started performing miracles and exercising demons and people were coming to him. His fame was spreading all over the place. And so Mark records consistently throughout Mark when Jesus is ever teaching in a place that there's no standing room. There is no room at the door. His fame was spreading. And so Jesus went on sort of a preaching tour around the area in the area of Galilee that Mark notes in chapter 1 verse 33. And the whole town gathered at the door. And it's no surprise then when we find Jesus back in Capernaum in chapter 2 that the same thing happens. His fame has just been continuing to build and build. And the gathering crowds in Mark 2, 2 come to listen to Jesus' teaching. And Mark chapter 2 starts a series of really five small stories where Mark is trying to show us something about Jesus. Specifically, he's showing how Jesus demonstrated his authority, in particular, in opposition of it. Mark's main purpose in our passage today is to communicate three areas that demonstrate, that Jesus demonstrates his authority over, and how those demonstrations of authority gave evidence of who Jesus really was. It gave evidence to his true identity. First, Jesus demonstrates his authority over sin. The second thing Jesus does is demonstrate his authority over religious tradition. And third, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the Sabbath. And so we're going to begin in chapter 2, verses 2 through 12. And for sake of time, we're going to kind of summarize the stories today. But we're going to start there where Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sin. Jesus wielded the authority to do what only God had the prerogative and the power to do, to forgive sins. And so the summary of the story goes is that uh, Jesus is teaching to the crowds again. It says he's teaching them the word, the gospel, and he's in Simon and Andrew's house likely. And because his fame is spreading, again, the house is packed. No one can really get in or out. They're just kind of stuck there listening to him till it's over. But four men come a little late, probably because they've been carrying their friend across town, a paralytic, and is caught. And four of them are carrying them to get him to Jesus. And when they realize they can't get in the house because the crowd's not going to budge and they might not even have anywhere to go to, to allow four people to carry a cot in, they decide we're going to go on the roof and we're going to dig a hole in the roof. And they kind of, you can imagine, had to aim like, okay, where is Jesus in this house? He's probably about here. And they actually had to dig through that roof. It would have made, been made of sticks and clay and different things. And so you can just imagine Jesus is teaching in there and just debris starts falling on him. And people are like, what is going on up there? Peter and Simon, like, is someone going to pay for this? Or 
So that's kind of what's the picture that's happening. And I don't know how long it took them, if they had a sledgehammer or what, to do a six by four foot hole for maybe the man and his cot, but they did it. And they did it really well because he comes right down at the feet before, at Jesus' feet. And then Jesus says something pretty interesting. He says, sons, son, your sins are forgiven. And then what happens is the religious leaders seeing this, start to contemplate in their own heart, in their own thoughts, who is this guy? Who, who, do he, who does he think he is just saying your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. Only God can do that. God is the one we sin against. And so Jesus, perceiving that, seeks to rebuke them by really asking them a question of which is easier— to just say your sins are forgiven or to prove it by healing this man, essentially. And so what Jesus does is he heals the man, tells him to pick up his bed and walk, and so he does. And he walks out of the crowd right before all of them, and it says they're all amazed and begin to glorify and worship God. And while we're going to focus on the central idea of these stories today, that Jesus had authority to forgive sin, and that what that said about his identity— I want to point out something to you as we go through this series and we're seeking, how do we make disciples? How do we use Mark to make disciples? And notice something about those four men that is likely implied by bringing their friend. Those with genuine faith were willing to overcome obstacles to get to Jesus. They didn't just give up when they showed up there and the house was too crowded. Christians have to be willing to make personal sacrifices if they want to get others to Jesus. If you're going to make disciples, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you money. It might cost your reputation. It might cost you comfort. It might cost you having to be a little creative. These are all costs that those men carrying their friend had to bear in order to get their friend to Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us virtually nothing about them, but they had a burning desire evident to get their friend to Jesus. The question for us is, are we going to have the same passion and determination for getting people to Jesus? Are you pursuing others with the same sort of self-sacrifice and the same passion because of their need to get to Jesus? However, the main point here is not that we focus on those four men carrying their friend, but in fact that we focus on the interaction that happens between Jesus, this paralytic man, and the religious leaders. Jesus tells the paralytic in verse 5, sons, your sins are forgiven. Think about that. Everyone in that room knew Jesus could heal But what they thought was, or what they perceived, was that man's greatest need was for physical healing. But Jesus knew his most important need was not for physical healing. It was for spiritual healing. That needed to come first. Therefore, Jesus himself affirmed indirectly, humanity's greatest need is not for physical wellness. 
It's not for education. It's not for prosperity. It's not for humanitarian services. It's not for government programs. It's not for emotional stability. It's not even necessarily for love. Humanity's greatest need is to have their sins forgiven and so escape the wrath of God. That is humanity's greatest need. And that can only be accomplished through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. When we disciple others, that is the primary issue we have to address with them. In addition to the ways they may be hurting or suffering. You see, Jesus didn't just ignore his physical condition, but he did let the spiritual condition take supremacy. It came first of most importance. And I think we need to do the same. And just notice a little later in the passage that Jesus didn't rebuke the scribes for their recognition that only God can forgive sin. He didn't rebuke them for that. They correctly understood the Old Testament scriptures, at least in that regard. In Daniel 9.9, just a couple verses to show you, this is what it says. To the Lord our God belong what? Mercy and forgiveness. To the Lord belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And Isaiah 43, 25 through 26 says this, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. It's a fascinating thing there that God actually says we benefit from the forgiveness of our sins, but he does it for his own glory. Rather, Jesus was rebuking them with his question for their failure to recognize his authority. He had already done miracles. He had already been preaching the gospel of God in Mark 1 all across their Jesus. Yes, they still all across their region, yet they still did not recognize Jesus for who he was. Jesus did not declare to that paralytic, in the name of God, your sins are forgiven, or on behalf of God, your sins are forgiven. Rather, Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of Man, said, Son, your sins are forgiven. He claimed direct authority to forgive that paralytic sin. And the implication Jesus was making was clear. He himself was God. Jesus had the authority of God because he was God. And it's the same authority by which Christ today can offer the forgiveness of each and every sin of anyone who is willing to repent and place their faith in Christ. Jesus is the only person to ever walk the earth to not only claim the authority to forgive people's sins, but to verify it with God's power for everyone to see. And notice Mark doesn't even point out what the paralytic sins exactly are. And Jesus doesn't either. Jesus knows what his sins are. And likely, I think, why is because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter how bad his sins were or how heinous or what he had done in the past. It only mattered Jesus had the authority of whatever sin it was to forgive it. And so that's the same authority by which we today through Christ can offer the full forgiveness of each and every sin of anyone who is willing to repent and place their trust in Christ. 
Jesus is the only, oh, sorry, I'm reading my notes again. He can forgive any sin, no matter how heinous, no, t- how, no matter how terrible it is. And so Jesus' authority to extend forgiveness and grace becomes even more apparent in the next story. So we're going to move on to chapter 2, verses 3 through 17, where, where Jesus demonstrates his ability to justify sinners. Jesus' authority to justify sinners. So again, the summary of the, st- of the story is, it's apparent some time has passed since Jesus is, has healed this paralytic. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, which Capernaum was right next to, and he's been teaching out near the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because there's more room there. The crowds can gather, and he doesn't have to worry about getting crushed by them. And while Jesus is walking along the, the seashore there, he finds a man named Levi sitting at a tax booth. More familiar to most of you, probably Matthew. It's a common thing in the Bible that Jesus' disciples had a couple names that they went by. And Jesus calls Levi to be a disciple the same way he previously called Simon and Andrew and James and John, the disciples in chapter one. He just tells him, get up and follow me. And that's what Matthew does. And so Levi invites Jesus over as the guest of honor to a dinner party at Levi's house. And naturally, Levi invites his friends. But who are his friends? Tax collectors, prostitutes, thugs, other outcasts in their society. And the Pharisees, still fascinated with Jesus, are apparently following them around and follow them to Levi's house. But of course, they don't go in because they're watching from the outside. They're not going to associate with those people. They just want to see what Jesus is doing. And so the religious leaders begin to grumble against Jesus' disciples outside. They're offended that Jesus would eat with such immoral people. Does he know who he is with? Does he know what those people have done? And so what Jesus does is respond to them with a common proverb known in in that day. That those who are well do not have a need for a physician, but those who are sick. And Jesus alludes that he is the great physician. He is there to make sinners well. And in order to understand how radical this incident is with Levi and how scandalous it is for Jesus to be with tax collectors, you have to understand what it was like to be a tax collector during Jesus' time. Tax collectors like Levi would have been called a moak, more particularly a little moak. He would have worked for someone who owned a tax franchise, basically the big guy on the hill who had his henchmen go out and collect the taxes, and he would get a cut. And so Jesus was one of the guys that would have worked for this man, and he would have been there in the toll booth collecting taxes for this. There would have been taxes on a lot of things, not much unlike today, imports, exports, transportation, bridges, whatever it is, there was taxes. And you can imagine these people, these tax collectors, were not very popular. They were known as extortionists, and traitors primarily, extortionists, because what they would do is they would charge more tax than was actually owed, and then they would just pocket that money. And if you refused to pay, they would have the thugs by them beat you up, or send a guard of Roman soldiers into your house, or threaten your family. 
And so they were greedy swindlers, constantly taking money from people. And they were also traitors. The Jews hated Rome, and the tax collectors were a constant reminder of Rome's oppression and rule over them. And for a Jewish person to take the job of a tax collector and to take their money that was now going to their enemy, Rome, that was a traitor. Jewish tax collectors were the lowest of the low in Jewish society. They were disqualified as judges and witnesses in court. They were expelled from the synagogue. They were a cause for a disgrace in the family. Their touch rendered a house or person ceremonially unclean. Other Jews were forbidden from even receiving money from them because they know likely where that money came from, from extorting other Jews. And Jews were even permitted by their religious leader at times to lie to the tax collectors, even though God told them they shouldn't lie. And so we, here we have Jesus essentially calling every character that Al Pacino has ever played to be his disciple. Like, are you serious? And you can imagine, I can imagine even Simon and Andrew as fishermen have probably been ripped off by this guy plenty of times when they're bringing in their catch. And they're like, Really? This guy, this guy is going to be your disciple. And not only did he call Levi to be a disciple, but he was also eating and drinking in his house and associating himself with the rest of Levi's shady friends. To Jews, eating in someone's house was a sign of close association and acceptance. A sign of close relationship. And so Mark records in verse 15, there were many sinners who followed Jesus, just as the disciples followed Jesus. The point here is Jesus purposely sought out to associate himself with sinners like Levi. Why? Because they needed him and they knew it. It is only those who recognize they are sinners that realize their need to get well and to go see the doctor. Just as a doctor wouldn't tell a sick patient, go home, get better, and then come to me. Jesus doesn't tell that to people. He doesn't tell you, go clean up your act, go make yourself good, go do all these good things, and then maybe you can come see me. Maybe then I will heal you. He accepts people as they are. Broken, sick, desperate, in need, of a cure, in need of care. He will heal them and care for them and they only recognize their helpless state and humble themselves by coming to the only one who can cure them. Jesus is the divine doctor and the only one who can make you spiritually whole again. Jesus' own words imply he is the only one who can make you righteous before God. He's the only one who can make you right with God. Jesus can take the most horrendous, offensive sinner like Levi and make him into a disciple clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ himself. Jesus had authority to justify sinners. And as we proceed to the next story, in verses 18 through 22, it is really a progression towards Jesus asserting his own authority by dismantling the self-righteousness 
the self-righteous authority of the religious leaders and their false religious system. The righteousness of Jesus in his way is being contrasted with the damnable, self-righteous way of the religious leaders. They were not actually righteous. They just thought that they were. And so Jesus demonstrates his authority over religious tradition. Jesus demonstrated his authority by overriding what was thought to be the top religious authority at the time by amending their religious tradition at least the parts of it that were actually grounded in God's word. But Jesus will explain soon after even that amendment, he didn't come to just patch up their religious system. He didn't come to just change a few things about it. His gospel of grace was not compatible with their self-righteous religion. He came to completely replace that religious system. And so Jesus had authority to amend religious tradition. Jesus begins in verse 18 with amending the practice of fasting. Fasting was a common practice to abstain from food or drink in the ancient, uh, ancient Jewish world, and you did it at the death of a loved one. Sometimes during illness or bad times or when you were in a mode of repentance or a time of mourning. And we're told John the Baptist's disciples fasted, the Pharisees' disciples fasted, even Jesus himself voluntarily fasted. We know that from the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus went out for his temptation, what did he do? He fasted for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. And so why not Jesus' disciples? Why didn't they fast? And Jesus gives the answer in verse 19 that Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. By referring to himself as the bridegroom, Jesus was asserting that his presence was one that demanded celebration, not fasting. Feasting, not fasting. The bridegroom was how God had referred to himself in the Old Testament in, his, in relationship to his people, Israel. And so Jesus uses the same metaphor, the same title to again establish his divine authority. Jesus was claiming to be the divine husband of God's people. Therefore, fasting was an inappropriate way to respond to Jesus' presence, just as it's inappropriate to fast at a wedding. Weddings are a time of celebration, of indulging, not a time of mourning, or abstaining. That would have been disrespectful to the bride and the groom. And so Jesus brought the gospel of God in chapter 1 and his kingdom into the world. And we're told in Mark 1.14, he was inviting people to come into God's kingdom, to become citizens through the gospel message, and this was a time for celebration. There would come a time when Jesus would be taken away, he says in verse 220. He was foreshadowing his death. Jesus knew where he was headed. He knew he would violently be taken away from his disciples at one point, but it wasn't now, and so now was not the appropriate time to fast. When that time came, they could fast. Therefore, the presence of Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, demands celebration. 
And even looking further for us, past Jesus' arrest, past Jesus' death, what do we find? His resurrection. And to this day, because of Jesus' resurrection, we ultimately always experience his presence with us always. Therefore, even today in our church, now is a time of celebration. What did Jesus tell his disciples at the Great Commission? He will be with them when? Always, till the end of the age. Church, Christ is with you always through everything. Regardless of what's happening out there in the world or in your life, there is always an occasion to rejoice because Christ is with you. His presence dwells with you. But Jesus clarifies next to the crowds in verses 21 to 22 that he didn't come to simply patch up or amend the pharisaical system. He came to do something entirely new. He was going to replace the Pharisees' false religion with true religion, namely the gospel of repentance and faith. The gospel of grace is incompatible with a system based on works righteousness, that you have to do enough good things to get to God, and then God will accept you. They can't harmoniously exist alongside one another. That's what Jesus means in his two examples. He talks about a garment and these wineskins. Both would have been present at a wedding. And essentially what he means by those is he's, I'm ushering in a new era so magnificently different than your works righteousness religion. It's going to replace it. And it's much more amazing. And so the bottom line is you don't get right with God by any other way than through Jesus Christ. It is not an adherence to religious rules. It's not about how much you read your Bible. It's not about how much you tithe. It's not about how many verses you memorize or how consistent your church attendance is or how many ministries you serve in or how well your kids are behaved or how successful they become. It's not about how many good things you have done. The Pharisees and the religious leaders had it all and they still missed it. They did not have an affection and a trust in Jesus Christ. They missed the point of it all. And all of your good works, no matter what you've done, only matter to the extent that they are done from a heart that recognizes, trusts, and celebrates Jesus' work on your behalf. Jesus has done for you what you can never do for yourself. He made you right with God by the power of his cross if you're only willing to turn from your sins and place your faith in him. Only Jesus has the authority to pay the penalty for all your sin as a perfect sacrifice from God. Only Jesus has the authority to call you and make you a wretched, hopeless sinner, his disciple. Only Jesus has the authority to give his spotless righteousness as the Son of God to you. And that is what makes you acceptable to God, to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Christ. 
Unfortunately, though, even after this incident, it seems the Pharisees and the scribes didn't accept Jesus or his authority. Therefore, they continued to oppose him, and Jesus again would have to demonstrate his authority, his superior authority. And this time, it came directly in an opposition to their face, directly where they thought they had the most power and probably did wield the most authority over the people in regards to the Sabbath. And so Jesus demonstrates his authority over the Sabbath in verses 23 all the way to Mark chapter 3, verses 6. He de- Jesus demonstrated his authority in regards to the Sabbath in two ways, according to Mark. His ability to define the Sabbath and Jesus' authority to heal on the Sabbath. So our first story begins in Mark 2, 23 through 28, And again, we find Jesus and his disciples, and he's traveling on the Sabbath day with them. And they're going through a grain field, and they're picking heads of grain from the field. This was allowed by the Old Testament, and actually uh, one way that God cared for the poor of Israel in the Old Testament. They would always have something to eat, that they were allowed to go to their neighbor's field and pick from the grain. They weren't allowed to harvest or have a huge bounty, just enough for them to eat. And so that's what Jesus' disciples were doing. But then what happens is the Pharisees are there again. They define what the disciples are doing as working. And that was forbidden by the Old Testament to work on the Sabbath. And in fact, it was even punishable by death to work on the Sabbath. And so they accused them of doing something unlawful. And Jesus encounter to that tells him a story of King David and basically how a time of great need he did what was unlawful. He ate of the bread that only the priests ate, the bread that was offered before God at the end of the week on the Sabbath that the priests would eat. And so on that basis, Jesus says the Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing. It's not a burden for man. Jesus refers to himself as being Lord over the Sabbath, and therefore he has authority to define it. And you've got to understand how oppressive this Sabbath system was. The Pharisees had created a system surrounding the Sabbath that transformed it truly from a blessing to just stop everything you were doing during the week, to rest, to not have to worry, and they turned it into a tremendous burden for the people. They sought to take the Sabbath commands and define them as narrowly as they possibly could. The idea was the more deprivations you have, the more holy that you are. And so they, had, they made up laws that weren't in God's word. Laws about how far you could walk, what you could lift and what you could put down, what you were allowed to move, what you were allowed to do with your hands on the Sabbath, what type of items you were allowed to carry, how much you were allowed to carry, how, much, how you were allowed to bathe, what you were allowed to cook, what you were allowed to eat, what you were allowed to wear, what you were allowed to write, what you were allowed to do for fun on the Sabbath. And it just goes on and on and on. There's hundreds of laws they made. And they demanded that every single person in Israel submit to their man-made Sabbath rules to observe them. And Jesus not only rejected their arrogance by trying to assert their authority essentially above God's and defining the Sabbath so narrowly, 
but also exposed they were the ones who were the violators of God's law. They were the ones who actually broke the Sabbath. And at this point, there's a, I want to share with you that there's a parallel account, a parallel account of this particular occurrence in the book of Matthew. And I think it sheds light on something Matthew included that Jesus said to the Pharisees that Mark doesn't include. In Matthew 12, 7, Jesus says to the Pharisees, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Jesus was quoting directly from Hosea 6.6. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Jesus' point was that God desires mercy and love of your neighbor over the observance of some religious ritual. If the Pharisees had understood this, they would have cared for Jesus' disciples. They would have cared for these other sinners. But instead, they constantly oppressed them with their constant law-keeping and lorded it over people how holy and how good they were. Human needs and the willingness to meet them is of more importance to God than religious ceremony. The disciples' need to eat was more important than splitting hairs about what constituted work on the Sabbath. Jesus knew this because he was Lord of the Sabbath. He was the one who created mankind and he was Lord over mankind. So he was certainly Lord over the Sabbath. And if he was Lord over the Sabbath, he was God because God created the Sabbath. And so he would decide how the Sabbath will be defined, not the religious leaders. He would define the Sabbath. And the religious leaders' callous hearts toward their neighbors and really their failure to fulfill the law is explained by Jesus. He rebukes them in Matthew 23, 23, which is an incident that happens later. But he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected weightier matters of the law. The more important things you have neglected, justice, mercy, faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And in our last story for today, found in Mark 3, verses 1 through 6, we see their callous hearts in opposition to Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Likely, he had pretty severe nerve damage, and it kept him as an outcast from society. It probably kept him from doing the work he needed to do to survive well. It was unusable. And rather than feeling any sort of pity or compassion for that man, the Pharisees simply lie in wait to see what Jesus will do for the sole purpose that they might accuse him of violating the Sabbath, to accuse Jesus of some sin. But then Jesus, as is very... uh, characterized by what he does, actually initiates a public incident. Jesus gets this going. He knows what's going on, and he tells that man with the wither hand, come here. And he puts them in front of the, and puts him in front of the entire synagogue. And he asks the Pharisees a really simple question. 
in verse 4, chapter 3. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or kill? But they were silent. Jesus had bested them at their own religious game. He had bested them. They couldn't answer. If they said that it was, if they said it was okay to kill or to do harm, they knew that was a violation of God's law. Nowhere did God direct that they should harm or kill anybody, and in fact, just the opposite. But they also knew if they say it's okay to do good, to save a life, they didn't have any grounds for accusing Jesus anymore. And so they didn't have anything to answer him. And they stayed silent. And without an ounce of pity for that man that was before them, or an inkling of consideration for the authority of the person who was speaking to them, they stayed silent. And so Jesus grieved at their hardness of heart and became angry with them. I find it interesting in the Gospels, you know who Jesus was always angry or frustrated with? It wasn't crazy people who followed him. It wasn't people who had done horrible things that came to see him. It wasn't people who came to him for healing. It was the religious people. Those were the people who opposed Jesus. And so Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath, proving his teaching on the Sabbath was superior to theirs. Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath was superior to the Pharisees. And Mark records our final verse what the Pharisees decided to do. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, their enemy, those who supported the tax collectors being in place and supported King Herod. And how to destroy him. So the question for us is, how will you respond to Jesus' authority? The way I see it, in Mark's gospel, he records three reactions, and really everyone falls in one of these categories. There was the response of the religious leaders. The leaders had made up their mind. Jesus had crossed the line. Jesus claimed to speak for God. Jesus claimed to have the power of God. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus rejected their ways. Jesus rejected their religion. Jesus rejected their ungodly self-righteousness. And Jesus had asserted his authority to define God's Sabbath. And he condemned their hard hearts. They were not going to listen to him. They were not going to submit and say, I will change my life based on your authority. Ultimately, Jesus had confronted their pride, challenging everything that they had ever held dear or built their life on, and they decided Jesus must die. He must be destroyed. They refused to bow the knee and worship in submission to Jesus' authority. And you might be someone that's like that. You might be someone who was dragged here to church today by someone else. And really, you're just completely opposed to Jesus. You are going to live your life the way that you want to live it, and nobody else is going to tell you otherwise. And I would urge you, if that is the pride in your heart, you have a need to repent and turn to Christ. If you are not humbled now, you will be humbled later. Second response, that of the crowds. 
The crowds were fascinated with Jesus, but really they were unchanged. They were astonished at his authority, and at times, as we even read today, they worshiped God in light of it. However, never once are we told in the gospel that the crowds respond in faith and repentance to Jesus, only with amazement and astonishment, never with a commitment to follow him, to give their lives to him. In fact, throughout the gospels, you know what the crowds serve, what the most common theme they serve as? They act as an obstacle for the disciples of Jesus and people who want to be near Jesus to get there. They're constantly in the way. They were just interested in Jesus, but they weren't interested in following him. And maybe you are someone like that too. You sat in these pews. You've gone to church for a long time. And you're interested in Jesus, and you like being around his disciples, but when it comes to your life, nothing has changed. Nothing is transformed. Nothing is different. And I tell you, if you are that person, not only are you not Jesus' disciple, but you will obscure people from coming to Jesus. You know what people think when people claim to be a Christian? and their life is virtually nothing different before and after or during, Jesus must not be that great. Whatever he's teaching is not that interesting. It's not that amazing. And that's what you will be if you're simply one of the crowd. And the last response, the response of Jesus' disciples Men and women who knew they were sinners in desperate need of only what Christ can offer. And the disciples repented and they put their faith in Jesus. They followed Jesus. They worshiped Jesus with their entire lives. They confessed with Peter, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when Jesus vindicated any doubt of his authority to his disciples by rising from the dead, what did he tell them at the Great Commission? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And how should you respond? Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That is the response of a Christian and a disciple to Jesus' authority. So how will you respond to his authority? What will you make of Jesus? In his final hours, when Jesus got asked by the Jewish high priest, the highest religious authority at the time, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus responded in triumph, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. My friends, do not wait until that day to respond to Jesus' authority. It will be too late. Now is the time to respond to Jesus' authority. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. God, thank you for revealing your authority through Christ to us. May it transform us, may it change us, and may no one leave this room without 
facing the fact that they need to respond, Lord. And the reality, if we do not respond now, we will certainly respond at his second coming, Lord. But then it will be too late. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.